Well, once again, if you have a Bible with you and want to open to Psalm chapter 77, that's where we'll be this morning, Psalm 77. As we kick off a new teaching series here at Calvary this weekend, the series will be about three weeks long here, <coughs> pardon me, and will take us through the month of November. And before you know it, it will be the Christmas season here at Calvary. Uh, we will celebrate the birth of Christ, and so that is coming very quickly toward us. Psalm 77 is where we'll be. I'll, I'll start this way. It was about a year ago, last Christmas, I, I got a Christmas gift, and I would describe this Christmas gift as the worst Christmas gift I have ever received. My, my older brother, Kevin, hands me a box, and I open up the box, and inside the box, um, there's tickets to an event. And I thought, oh, how neat. We're going to go to a concert, a show, a ball game, something like that. No, no, not that kind of event. I open up the box. I take out the tickets. It is tickets to a Spartan race. Now, a Spartan race, if you don't know, is one of those terrible things where people voluntarily drive into the mountains and they run up and down hills for a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon. They jump over things and they carry heavy things and they do monkey bars and crazy feats of athleticism. They jump through fire. It's a terrible, terrible experience. So he says, okay, I've signed you up for one of these, and I think, say, thank you so much for this generous gift. So last weekend, uh, my brother and I, and uh, actually Chris Belinsky, who is our head audio tech, he's in the room right now, he did this voluntarily, by the way, um, drove up to San Luis Obispo, and we participated in this Spartan race. And so we ran a 10K through the mountains, 25 different obstacles that were going up and over, uh, and we're going through this race, and we're doing all of these things, um, and it was just just this like grueling experience. Um, but then I get to the end of the race, and I feel like, okay, I've completed this thing. I've finally gotten through this uh, thing that was absolutely overwhelming to me, and I did it. And then someone reminds me at the end, they said, hey, just so you know, um, as you go through this race, there were people taking photos the entire time, and they're going to send those photos to you. Now, I was so exhausted, I didn't even see people taking photos of me. I was so overwhelmed, I didn't even know there were people taking photos, but sure enough, there were people taking photos, and then an email comes in about middle of this week. It says, your photos are ready, and I thought, you know what? I ran a 10K through the mountains. Surely, I would at least have a photo of myself looking athletic or cool, something, something I would really be proud of and excited about, so I open up the email, I click on the link, and this is the photo they send me of myself. <laughs> To add insult to injury, it looks like I am about to die in this photo here. But this was the experience of the Spartan race. I'm going through the Spartan race, and it's just like everything is grueling and hard, and I'm still up here pre preaching this weekend. I'm a little sore, and it was difficult. And here's what, here's what I remember. I remember the night um, this ended, I got home to my wife, and I was telling her about the race, and I was all excited. I was feeling good. I was like, man, I just ran a Spartan race, and I feel good. But then I woke up the next morning. And I was hurting all over the place. I was aching. I was just feeling it in all kinds of places. I was feeling aching and sore in muscles I didn't even know I had. And this was the experience after the Spartan race. But then it gets worse because then the next, next morning I woke up and I didn't feel better. I felt worse. I felt so sore this week. And if you talk to anyone who's a physical trainer who knows the human body at all, they would tell you about something called delayed onset muscle soreness. They would say, yeah, the night of, you're going to feel fine because adrenaline in your body is still going. The next day, you'll feel sore, and the next day, you'll feel even worse. But they would look at me after a Spartan race, and here's what they would say out of sympathy to me. They would say, it's normal to feel sore right now. They would tell me it's normal to feel sore right now. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life, I just need someone to look me in the eye and tell me that the way I'm feeling right now is normal. It's normal to feel this way. It's normal to have this going on. You're not crazy. You're not unique. You're not some different kind of person. You're not particularly weak for feeling sore right now. It's normal to feel sore right now. And here's why I bring this up this morning. 
Because I want to make a statement to you that the rest of this sermon, and really the rest of this series, will pivot on. And that's the simple truth that with everything that's going on in the world right now, with everything going on in the news and in our community and in some of your families and your lives and your finances, I want you to know this morning that it is normal to feel grief right now. It's normal. Maybe someone hasn't told you this, but it's normal to look at the news and to see what's happening in Israel and Gaza and to feel grief right now. It's normal to see how that spills over even to about a mile down the road from here in our own community in a protest where someone dies and to feel grief right now. It's normal for you to go through the week we went through where we recognize the five-year anniversary of a twin tragedy that hit our community, of the borderline shooting and of the fires of 2018, that it's normal to feel grief right now. Maybe for you, your grief has nothing to do with global or local news, but has something to do going on in your family. Maybe it's a diagnosis you got or something going on with your spouse. Maybe you have a child or a grandchild who's wayward and off in the far country right now. Maybe you've gone through financial pressure or your business never really recovered after COVID or inflation and the economy right now is just pinching you on all sides. It's normal to feel grief right now. What we want to do over the next couple weeks is give us a path through that desert, that wilderness of grief. We want to lay out for you what the scriptures have to say to those of us who are grieving, who feel heavy, who feel dark clouds all around us right now. The title of this series is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and we take uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy from the title of a book a number of us have read on staff here, and that book is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by, Mike, by, by Mark Vrogop. And, and this book is this book that really helps people who are mourning, who are suffering, who are going through grief to understand the path that God offers to us through the wilderness and the desert of pain. I recommend this book to you fully. You can get it on Amazon before you even leave the service today. We have copies in our bookstore if you want to go grab one. I'll be quoting from it this morning with the hope to give you an insight into what this book is all about. And you'll see the subtitle here says this, that we discover the grace of lament, of lament. And that's what I want to talk to you about from Psalm 77 this morning, the grace and the gift that God gives us of lamenting to him in the midst of our grief. Again, Mark Vrogop describes uh, lament this way. He says, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And here's my simple hope this morning. My simple hope this morning is to walk through this psalm, to offer you this prayer, to give you a template and a way to work through your own pain, your own suffering, and your own grief, that it might lead you to healing and that it might lead you to faith. That's my hope and desire this morning. And I know as I do this, I'm speaking to two distinct groups of people. The first group of people in here are the people who are grieving right now. You've gone through a loss. You're walking through a difficult season. Your heart feels heavy and the clouds feel dark all around you right now. And if that's you, I want to suggest that this sermon and this sermon series is a message that the Holy Spirit has for you. That he wants to do a healing work and a work of faith and a work of power and mending the broken things in your life. He wants to do that over the next few weeks. But then there's others of you who might go, you know, I know there's bad things going on in the world, but I'm feeling all right right now. I'm not grieving. I'm not overwhelmed. I feel actually like I'm on track and things feel good right now. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, not to check out on this sermon or this series, not to say, well, this isn't for me. Because as much as the message might be for some of you who are grieving, I believe the Holy Spirit might want to use this message through others of you who are not grieving right now. Because I promise if you're not grieving, there is someone in your life in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood who is grieving right now. 
And your job is to receive what God has to say and allow him to do a ministry through you to the people who are hurting in your life. So with that in mind, let's turn to Psalm 77. I want to show you the first words here. It begins this way. The psalmist says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord, and at night I stretched out untiring hands and would not be comforted. So this begins with the psalmist, and he's in pain, and it doesn't tell us why he's in pain. He's struggling, and he's suffering, and he's walking through a season of grief. But I want you to notice what he doesn't do. It doesn't say that he looked inward. It doesn't say he complained or whimpered or just talked about how hard life was. You'll notice this is inside of yourself, that when we go through pain and suffering, the impulse most of us has is to think about ourselves and obsess over ourselves. This starts at a young age. When any of my young children are running around and they fall and they skin their knee, their attention immediately goes into themselves. They're thinking about themselves and talking about themselves, and this is the natural human impulse. And yet I want you to notice what the psalmist does. He's in pain, there's no question. But in Psalm 77, 1, it says, I cried out to God. Again, in the same verse, I cried out to God. In verse 2, it says, I sought the Lord. Like in other words, in the midst of his pain and grief and distress, he turns his attention toward the Lord. This morning, I want to talk to you about the four steps of lament. The four steps that we can take when we're in a season of pain and grief and suffering. And the first of those four steps is simply this, that we would turn to God. That we would turn to God. That we would be a people when we suffer and when we're in pain who do not turn inward and obsess over ourselves and overthink the situation and get deep into ourselves. Rather that we would be a people that turn our eyes and our attention to God. This may seem simple and yet so many of us fail to do it because that natural human instinct is to focus inward, to try to solve the problem on our own, to think about it, to feel about it, but not to turn to God. Like I want you to imagine it this way, and this is a purely hypothetical situation that's never happened in my house and never happened, I'm sure, in your house. But I want you to imagine there's a married couple. They've been married a long, long time, and every morning the husband gets up and he gets ready for work. He takes a shower, he gets out of the shower, he gets the towel, he drives himself off. But rather than taking the towel and putting it back on the hook in the bathroom, he takes the towel and he throws the wet towel onto the bed and proceeds about his day. Again, never happened in my house, definitely never happened in your house, but you can imagine with me. So... I want you to imagine the wife sees this and she's frustrated by this because there's a wet towel on her bed. And so she sees this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and it's killing her inside. She picks up the towel and she just frustratingly puts it back on the hook. She gets mad about it and she thinks about it all day, how frustrated she is. She gets around all of her friends. They sit down for coffee. They say, how you're doing? She goes, not good. He put, a, he put the towel on the bed again. Every morning he does this. This happens year after year, decade after decade, and eventually she sits down with you for wise counsel because she's about to snap over the towel situation. Now, if you were sitting down with her and you heard the entire story I just told you, I think there would be a question on the top of your mind. I think there would be a very simple question that you would want to ask this woman, a simple question that doesn't seem like she has actually considered, and you would look across the table at coffee with her and say, I hear your plight of the towel situation, and here's the simple question I have. Have you talked to him about it? Like, have you had a conversation with your husband because you seem to just be upset about it and you're trying to fix it on your own. You're telling all your friends about it, but have you talked to him about it? Because this is actually something he has the power to control. This is actually something that he could change and make different. Have you talked to him about it? And child of God, I want to ask you the same question in your suffering and in your grief and the thing that's overwhelming to you right now with your child or your grandchild, with your finances or with global events. Have you talked to him about it? 
See, I know this sounds so simple, but what happens for all of us is when we're grieving and when we're hurting, what we tend to do is we tend to overthink it. We tend to process it. Maybe we share our angst with our friends. If we're in financial trouble, our spouse or a financial advisor, we get a strategy together. If our child is upsetting us, we talk to our spouse or maybe even our child and we're so frustrated. But the question I have for you is, have you talked to God about it? Have you turned your eyes toward heaven and told God what's going on and what's bothering you deep inside? See, that's the very first step toward our healing and the very first step toward faith in the midst of grief. We talk to God about it. We call out to God about our finances, about our children, about global events, about local events, about our business, about our faith, about our health and our body. We talk to God about it. Because I want to make two simple observations this morning. The first is simply this, that overthinking changes nothing. I don't know who needs to hear this again, but you overthinking and overprocessing the situation and everything that could go wrong changes nothing. I need you to know the opposite is true, though. That prayer changes things. That prayer changes reality. That prayer actually has the capacity to change things in this world. Because when you're overthinking, you're thinking to yourself. But when you're praying, you're talking to the one who has power over every atom in this universe who has the capacity to change things and the capacity to make things better. Again, this prayer of lament begins by turning to God. Mark Vrogop, again, in this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says this, that lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. Again, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. The very first step of lament is turning our hearts and attention away from ourselves, away from our circumstances, away from our own selves, and to a God who can actually change things. In verse 3, it goes on this way. It says, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years long ago, and I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, before we even get to what his spirit asks and the questions he has before the Lord, I just want to identify something here. I want to identify that he is suffering and he is calling out to God, and yet there's still this angst going on inside of him. Verse 3, it says he groans. Verse 3 again, it says his spirit grows faint. In verse 4, he is too troubled to speak. So in other words, what happens for the psalmist is he's turned his attention and his heart before God, but that hasn't solved all of his problems. It hasn't made everything go away. See, the impulse for some of us when I say turn your attention to God is to say, thank you very much, Pastor Brian, but I did that years ago. I did that decades ago. I've been praying about my child, my grandchild, my body, my health, my finances for years, and God doesn't seem to be fixing it. And that's the experience the psalmist has here. He's been crying out to God, and yet God hasn't changed the circumstance. He hasn't changed it. He's going, I, go, I know prayer changes things, but it doesn't seem like it's worked in my scenario. And when we say that prayer hasn't worked, what we actually reveal inside of ourselves is an understanding of how God works and of how spirituality works that the Bible doesn't actually describe. You see, when I'm in pain, when I'm grieving, when things are hard in my life, what I want to happen is I want my prayers before the Lord to work a lot like a car mechanic works. Like when I go to the auto mechanic and I say, okay, I have a problem with my car. Here's what usually happens. Some of you know things about cars. I know nothing. So here's what I do. I drive my car up to the mechanic and I say, my car is broken. 
And he looks at it and goes, yes, it's broken. And I go, can you fix it? He goes, yes, that'll be $175,000. I give all of my money to the car mechanic. He takes my car away for a few days. I go away for a few days. I come back and my car is all brand new. And then I drive away and everything's better. That's how some of us want spiritual growth to work. And that's how some of us want to work through our grief. We want to come before the Lord, give him our stuff, He'll deal with it, and he'll bring it back brand new, and then we'll move along as if nothing ever happened. But what we need to be aware of is this. In the Bible, spiritual growth is not described mechanically. It's not described as a simple process that can be fixed, easily remedied, and handed back to us. That's not how the Bible describes spiritual growth. It's less like a car mechanic, and it is more like a gardener with their hands in the dirt. But when the scriptures describe spiritual growth, it describes it with agriculture. It describes it with plants that grow up out of the ground. You plant the seeds and you fertilize it. You pour the water, you let the sun shine down and it grows up out of the ground. Now again, I know very little about gardening, but what I do know is that you can plant two of the same seeds and they don't grow up in the exact same way. What happens with gardening is that something is growing out of the ground. It's beautiful, it produces fruit, it shows the world and makes it a more beautiful place. And yet it's the slow process. So when people say to me, well, Brian, I prayed about it, but nothing happened. It would be like me saying, well, I went out to my garden this afternoon. I put the seed in the ground. I poured some water on it. I stood there for an hour and nothing happened. It's like, of course nothing happened. This is how this process works. It is a long, slow process where God is bringing life out of broken and destroyed things, where a seed falls into the ground and God is causing something beautiful to grow out of it. It takes longer. It's more complicated. And yet what the psalmist is urging us toward is this feeling of, listen, I'm groaning. My spirit is faint. I'm troubled. And yet I'm going to keep leaning into God because he's doing something beautiful in my life. I want you to see in verse 7 here. Again, it said, my heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? He asks a series of questions here, six to be specific. And these questions are what I like to call loaded questions. He is not asking theological clarifications before the Lord. He's not going, Lord, are you sure you're merciful? Give me me a four-point sermon on your compassion. He's not asking for information before the Lord. These are loaded questions. Loaded questions, like when your boss looks at you and says, is this really the best you can do? That's not an informational question. It's an attack. Or it's like if someone looked at you, a friend or a spouse, and said, how long were you planning on hiding this information from me? That is not an interested question. That is a loaded question. And that's what the psalmist is asking the Lord. He's asking, are you serious, Lord? Have you abandoned me forever? Is your compassion just failing? Maybe you're not as loving as I thought you were. He's bringing these things before the Lord. These honest and raw questions, these are not questions where he's trying to understand more theology. These are questions that are loaded. These are him bringing his complaint and his angst before the Lord. Which brings us to the second step of lament. If the first step is that we turn to God, the second is we tell God how we feel. And we tell God how we really feel. I think one of the great dangers for Christians is that we think our prayers have to be polished and put together. We think we have to pray to God in this way that everything sounds nice and everything looks lovely. But that's not actually what God asks for us. And that's not what we see modeled in Psalm 77. Listen, one of the things we can do is we can bring our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions, our stuff before the Lord and hand it to him because he can handle it. He already knows what's going on and he invites us to come before him. 
Listen, one of the things I want to say this morning is that it's okay to, to tell God what feels true, even if it's not true. And all of us experience thoughts and feelings and emotions that we know aren't true, but it just feels like this invasive thought in our head. It's this thing that sits with us, and we know it's not true of God. We know it's not true of us, but it feels true, and we can't seem to shake it. And we can't seem to shake it, and so it just sits with us. It's like this. So um, when I come home from work, uh, I'm in the office, get home, 5.15, 5.30, I walk in the door, I open the front door, and the best days of my life are when I open the door and my three children see me, and they shout, Daddy! And then I go down to my knees, and they all hug me, and they're screaming, Daddy, 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 and then they lift me up into the air. Okay, they don't do that. But you know what I mean? Like, it just fills me. It's just like the best thing in the world when they celebrate me. But then there are other days. I walk in the door, and I see my beloved family, and it's crickets. I'm like, hello, children. And they're totally interested in other things. My wife, Danny, has to beg them to come over to greet me. And they walk over like, okay, we will. You know? And in those moments, it can just feel so discouraging. In those moments, it's like my children don't love me. They don't even care that I'm home. And listen, you don't have to tell me. I know that's not true. Like, I know my kids love me. But in the moment, I have a feeling, a thought, an emotion I can't seem to shake. And here's what's beautiful about our God. What's beautiful about our God is that when we have thoughts and feelings and emotions that we can't seem to shake, he wants us to bring it to him. He wants us to give it to him. You know the two beautiful things about God? You can tell God your true feelings. Whatever you're actually feeling in a moment, you don't have to hide from God. He already knows you can tell him your true feelings. And then what's beautiful about God is you can tell him your false feelings. You can go before God and say, God, I know this isn't true, but it's how I feel right now. God, I know it isn't true that the world is spinning out of control, but it sure feels like it is. God, I know you said you were going to provide everything that I needed in Christ Jesus, but I look at my finances and it doesn't feel that way right now. God, I raised my kid in exactly the way he should go, but it doesn't seem like he grew up and followed after Jesus, so what's the deal? These are prayers we can offer before the Lord, whether we know they're true or false. What God wants is everything. We bring it before him, the ugly stuff, the gross stuff, the questions, the loaded questions, the complaints about our life. We bring it all before him. And see, the danger is in the opposite. My concern is not for the Christian who prays these kind of gritty prayers that you're worried might be too much or too harsh. My, prayer, my concern is for the Christian who prays prayers that seem polished and perfect and pretending. Because I need you to know you'll never find peace by pretending everything's all right. You'll never find it. What we need to offer to the Lord is not these polished, perfect prayers of pretending, but rather these honest, gritty prayers that we offer before the Lord. It goes on this way in verse 10. It says, then, then I thought, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to underline that, highlight that, circle that phrase, because this is the pivot and the turning point of the entire psalm. See, what we said is that in our moments of grief and pain and lament, we turn to God and we offer him how we really feel. But that's not the end of lament. And for far too many people, that's what they want to do. They want to turn to God and accuse him and yell at him and be mad at him and offer their complaints, and that's where it ends. But you'll see here a pivot point, and everything after this verse in verse 10 is going to be what we do in addition to that. There's a move that happens where we move from complaint to something else entirely, and that something else is what leads to healing. See, one of the phrases we've used here at this church, we did an entire series on it last summer, is that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay. It's okay to walk in here not okay. It's okay to come into church crying. It's okay to feel disheveled. It's okay to feel like things aren't going well. It's okay that your family can be a mess and you come into this place and you feel like everything's falling apart. It's okay. God welcomes that. 
But here's the beautiful thing about our God. You don't have to stay that way. Like, it's okay to be okay but or not be okay, but you don't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to be like that forever. And for some people, they turn to God and offer their complaint, and they stay stuck in that forever. But what God wants is for you to bring your not okay before him, and then he's going to give you a prescription, a way out, that you might find healing and faith. It's like this. Imagine you go to the doctor's office. And you get into the room and you're talking to the doctor and you say, I've not been feeling well. You'd start to describe all the things wrong with your body. There is not a doctor I've ever met who would listen to you describing your illness and go, then why in the world are you in the doctor's office? Of course they wouldn't say that. You're the doctor. The whole point is that you're supposed to go to the doctor and you're supposed to find out a way to get better. And the doctor's job is to look at you, figure out what's wrong, and give you a prescription, a course, a path for you to get better. It may be medication, it may be diet or exercise or sleep or a specialist you need to see. There's all sorts of next steps you might take. In other words, the doctor's looking at you and says, it's okay that you're here. It's okay that you don't feel that way, but you don't have to stay that way. And they offer a prescription. And you know what's wild about it though? Doctors will tell you that people get prescriptions all the time and they never go fill them. They get referred to a specialist and they never go. They get told, hey, you probably need a little exercise or a little more sleep or something and they never do it. See, it's okay to not be okay, but you can stay this way. You can stay stuck in complaint and frustration and the hurt. But actually, the invitation of Psalm 77, the invitation of lament, and the invitation of our God is to move past that pain. Not that you forget about it, not that it goes away, not that it gets minimized, but that you can actually step into something different. And that's what we're about to see right here in this text. Verse 10 says this, To this I'll appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. So again, I said verse 10 is the pivot point of the entire psalm. That he's turning to God and he's offering his complaint. He's pouring out his soul. He says, then I want to consider something else. I want to consider in the midst of my grief and my pain and my suffering that there is another reality that exists And this leads us to the fourth step of lament. The first is that we turn to God. The second is that we tell him how we feel. And the third is that we remember God's goodness. That's what the psalmist does here. Verse 11, I'll remember the deeds of the Most High Lord. Verse 12, I'll consider all of your works. He's remembering, he's processing, he's thinking about the fact that yes, I've been through pain and yes, things are hard, but one of the bedrock foundations of my life is that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. This is one of the bedrock foundations for each of us. In the midst of pain, in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your grief, there is a remembrance that God is good. And if you're struggling this morning to remember God is good, can I offer you a memory verse? A verse to put to memory so that you can remember over and over that God is good. James 1, 17 and 18, some of you know it well, says this. The every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down out of the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. If you're struggling with the goodness of God, would you put this verse, these two verses to memory? This reminds us of at least four things about our God and his goodness. Number one, God is the incredible giver. It says here that every good and perfect gift is from above, which means the clothes you have on your back, the food you ate this morning and will eat later today, The home you have, everything you've ever had is a gift ultimately from God and his hand. He's the incredible giver. Number two, God is the intimate father. It says he is the father of heavenly lights. 
In other words, God is the dad who is there. He is intimate. He is with you. And whatever your experience with your earthly father was, God is the ideal. He is better. He is everything you ever wished your dad would or could be. He is the intimate father. Number three, God is the immutable creator. When we say immutable, we mean this, that he is the one who does not change like shifting shadows. To say God is immutable means he does not change from day to day. It's what the author of Hebrews said when he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The great news about God is he doesn't change from day to day. And thank God for that. Because if yesterday he was kind and gracious and loving and good, but today he was kind of cranky and angry and bitter and wanting to zap us, we would never know which way God was. But the beautiful thing about our God is he remains the same. He's immutable. He does not change. And then finally, God is the initiating Savior. You'll see these words in verse 18. He says, he chose to give us birth. He chose to give us salvation. The great thing you must remember about your God at all times is that he started this thing. The reason you're a Christian, the reason you're saved is not because you found God, but because God found you. God initiated, God loved, God saw you in all of your mess and all of your sin and all of your fallenness, and he decided that he wanted you and the family. So he sent his son Jesus to shed his blood on the cross that you might be part of the bloodline of Christ and the family of God. You are a child of God, not because of your initiation, but because of God's. That's the gospel. That's what we remember, that we have a relationship with God, not because of ourselves, but because of God's initiating love. This is the goodness of our God, that he is the giver, the father, the creator, the savior. He is the one who rescues and redeems. We anchor ourselves in these truths in the midst of the storms of our life. And then here's the final way the psalm's gonna end this morning, verse 14. It says, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed people with descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God, and the, the waters saw you, and they writhed, and the very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured water, and the heavens resounded with thunders, and your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind and your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked and your, your path led through the sea, your way through the waters, and your footprints were not seen. Now, if you're hearing the psalm, some of you will initially and immediately go, okay, I know what this is talking about, but if you're not clear, what the, what the psalmist here is poetically describing is the most important event in the nation of Israel's history, and that's the exodus from Egypt. It's the time that God rescued and saved his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And what he's doing is he's remembering God's goodness and then he's looking back to a specific moment in Israel's history saying God rescued us, God saved us. We were in deeper trouble than we are now and God rescued us anyway. But one of the things I want to observe, even how he describes it, of the Exodus story is that the Exodus story was many things. It was God showing his power and his strength and his redeeming covenant love. And yet the one thing the Exodus story was not was efficient. It was not fast. But like if you think about the Exodus story, you'll realize how incredibly slow what a process it actually was. Like the people of God are in Egypt and they grow and they grow and they're enslaved. And for hundreds of years, they cry out to God and God eventually hears their prayers and decides to act, so he sends Moses but he doesn't send Moses as a full-grown man. He sends him as a baby. And the baby eventually has to grow up. He goes into the desert. He encounters God in a burning bush. He goes back to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So he sends not one, not two, but 10 plagues. And he sends these plagues upon Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh says, get out of here. So they march out into the desert and they say, we're finally free. And then they hit the Red Sea. 
And now Pharaoh's and his armies are chasing after them. And so they feel stuck again. So God in that moment could have just lifted them up over the Red Sea, but instead he decides to divide the waters. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side of the water. Pharaoh and his armies chase after, and the waters come crashing back together, and they're gone. And the people of God in that moment go, and we have arrived at the promised land. No. 40 more years in the desert. They have to wander around before they get to the promised land. And what's my point? My point is that I am an efficient person. I love to get things done quickly. I love to keep things moving along and to save time and to be efficient. But it seems abundantly clear from the scriptures that God is not that same way. I love efficiency and God loves process. He loves process. If you look all throughout the scriptures, you'll see God working his process when he could have just snapped his fingers and done something. Instead, God is working a process in our lives, which brings us to our final of four, four steps of lament. We turn to God, we tell him what we feel, we remember God's promises, and finally, we trust God's process. We trust his process. The process God is working in your life, like God has an ultimate plan for your life. There is something God is working in your life, but in order to get to that plan, he will work a process. And at times you will see him working that process and at other times you will not. I heard it said years ago that God is probably doing 10,000 things in each of your lives right now. And you are probably aware of three of them. This is what God does. He is moving things and people in and out of your lives. He's changing things in your heart. He's making you aware of things. He's growing you. He's doing all of these things that to me seem so inefficient. And yet what God is doing is he's working this process to this final plan and outcome he has. And I think the ultimate example of this is, of course, the gospel. Like, again, if God wanted to just save us, he probably could have. He could have just saved and rescued. But it says here in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the time had fully come, God sent a son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might be, receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship is our salvation. We're part of the family of God. We're a child of God. God could have just done that. But instead, it says, but when the time had fully come, like all of human history had to pass up to Jesus. And then it's not that God sent Jesus, it's that he sent Jesus born of a woman, as an infant, who had to grow up. And then he had to go, die on the cross, go into the grave, rise from the dead. Then you would think, okay, mission accomplished, you'll save everyone. He goes, no, why don't you guys go tell every nation you know about me? And over 20 centuries, two millennia, people have been telling people about Jesus. Why? Because God loves process. He loves to work his process in our life. The gospel could have been God just snapping his fingers and saving, but instead he sends a process and he works that over century, over century, over century. And here's what I realize. The reason I get so frustrated with process is because I'm always short on time. There's always more things to do than time I have to do it. But you know what the beautiful thing about our God is? God is not short on time. He never has been, and he never will be. God has plenty of time. He is not in a hurry. He is not in a hurry with global events that make us unsettled. He is not in a hurry in our community or in our church. And he is not in a hurry in your life or in your family. God is working a process and he knows exactly what he's doing. And for us to trust God, for us to trust God is to trust his timing. It's to trust that God is working a process toward a final plan. In the midst of our grief, it is to trust that God is working a process even if I don't fully understand it. See, trusting God and hoping God in the scriptures, hoping on God's final plan, trusting him in the midst of it is not the way most of us use hope. Like most of us use hope, like I hope my plane isn't delayed, or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I might say, I hope my 49ers break their three-game losing streak this Sunday. Like, like I hope, I have no control over it, I don't know if it's going to happen, I'm just kind of hoping. 
But that's not the way hope and trust work in the New Testament. Hope and trust in the New Testament work more like the sunrise. Like if tomorrow morning you and I went to a hilltop here in the Canaro Valley and sat there and watched for the sunrise and it was dark outside, we wouldn't sit there looking at each other and go, do you think it's going to happen today? Do, I mean, I don't know. Do you know? No, we would sit there. We wouldn't even have to say it. But if we did have to say it, we'd look at each other and we'd say this, I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Child of God, you can trust your God. He is working a process toward a final plan. And what he said he was going to accomplish, he is going to accomplish. Because our God is a promise maker and is a promise keeper. He is going to accomplish every good thing in your life, up to and including the promise at the end of the Bible, that there will be no more crying, mourning, nor pain, no more death, for the old order of things has passed away. Listen, Jesus is coming back and he's making everything right. We can trust in it. It's just a matter of time. That's the invitation. So in the midst of now, if we know that there's going to come a day Jesus returns and we're not lamenting anymore, we're just singing hallelujah for all of eternity, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait for God's timing? And the answer, as it turns out, seems to be very simple. We learn to lament. We learn to pray. We learn to cry out to God, to turn toward him, tell him how we feel, remember his goodness, trust his process. We learn to be in that process that God is working inside of our lives. And this is the invitation for you this week, to learn, to lament, to put it into practice. Maybe you need to read through Psalm 77 again this week. Maybe you need to buy this book on Amazon or at our bookstore uh, that you would just get that and kind of read through this material in this season of your life. Maybe for you, it's just as simple as you need to begin in prayer now. And this is the invitation I want to give. Again, Mark Brogop, I'll close with this quote. It says, when the circumstances of life create dark clouds, I hope you'll learn to embrace lament as a divinely given liturgy leading you to mercy. This historic song gives you permission to vocalize your pain as it moves you toward God-centered worship and trust. Lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. So here's the invitation at the end of this sermon. I want to invite some of you, before we go on and go to lunch and go with the rest of our day, to take a beat and to bring your sorrow to God. He's there, he sees you, he's good, he's listening, and he wants it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And so here's the invitation all across this room. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And as you take a deep breath, I just want you to recognize if you're walking through a season of sorrow, perhaps you haven't even recognized in your own heart that there's some heaviness going on. Right now is that moment. And the invitation is simply this. I want to pray over those of you who are walking through a season of grief right now. And if that's you and you're walking through a scene, you don't have to tell me what it is. You don't even have to identify it to me. But would you just slip your hand straight up into the air and say, Pastor, right now, would you pray for me? I'm going through a season of suffering, of sorrow, of grief. There's many people, hundreds all over the room. Just keep your hand in the air right now as I pray. And if your hand is not in the air, would you pray for the hundreds of hands that are up in this room right now? Would you pray for folks online listening? Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, I pray for the grief that so many are going through, for the ache that's going on in their soul, God, I ask that in this time they would turn to God and tell him, God, you, how they feel. God, would they remember the goodness of God? Would they remember your process and your plan? But God, above all, I pray your Holy Spirit would do a ministering work in their heart today. Bind up wounds, bring healing, even to things that are decades old. 
God, would you bring a healing work into our church this weekend, this month, as we lean into you and who you are. God, would you show yourself to be strong and would you show yourself to be kind. And in the midst of dark clouds, may we experience as a church deep mercy this month. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen.